Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. How do you honorably do business in this time of human crisis in which we're losing every major ecosystem on the planet, we're in a climate emergency. And it turns out now we know that behaving in ways that are more responsible to people and to the planet are also more profitable. So it's it's interesting that this point of view is now becoming mainstream. If you will, sustainability is, is now just the way you do business if you're an intelligent business person. A number of us are moving on to a more fundamental concept of regenerative capitalism. This is a term coined by the ex-banker John Fullerton, who has a paper out by that title that I would highly recommend. He points out, based on the work of the great green architect Bill Reed, that nature is sustainable not because it's set out to be, but because it's regenerative. And that what we ought to be aiming at is not sustainability, if you will, that's just getting our nose above water, but regenerative systems that then deliver sustainability as an inherent outcome, not because we set out to do it. I'm very pleased today to introduce Hunter Lobens. Hunter is the founder of Natural Capitalism, a consultancy that develops innovative and practical ways to increase efficiency and environmental practices, as well as economic sustainability. Hunter has an extensive experience in the field of sustainability over 40 years. She co-founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, which she led jointly with Amory Lovens for 20 years. Hunter teaches sustainable business management at Bard College in New York and has taught at various universities, consulted for many citizens groups, governments and corporations. She's also chief insurgent of the Madroni Project, which curates and produces modular micro-courses that complement today's traditional sustainability programs. Thank you very much, Hunter, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My honour. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a great privilege to talk to you, to somebody who's uh, been at the the coalface, as it were, uh, of sustainability uh, for so long, for many decades. And uh, it'd be interesting to get a sense uh, of what you're up to today, what, 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 what you're focusing on, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the uh, work you've been doing. Sure. I run a small NGO called Natural Capitalism Solutions. We work with companies, communities, countries on more regenerative ways to solve some of the gnarly challenges facing humanity and make these solutions profitable. So at any point in time, I might be, as I was uh, two days ago, doing a radio interview on behalf of a local initiative to get better local control around fracking here in Colorado, or I may be consulting for a Fortune 100 company. Was in Paris uh, for the COP21 meeting, urging the nations of the world to finally seal the deal and in the final hours running around helping resolve conflicts that were going to stand in the way of getting that deal done. I was one of, what, thousands of people doing the same thing. 
and collectively we, we got a deal. I teach. I'm a professor of sustainable management at the Bard MBA. This is an MBA in which sustainability is baked into every class. So we teach all the standard business verticals of finance and accounting and marketing and such. But from the standpoint of how do you honorably do business in this time of human crisis in which we're losing every major ecosystem on the planet, we're in a climate emergency and it turns out now we know that behaving in ways that are more responsible to people and to the planet are also more profitable. So it's, it's interesting that this point of view is now becoming mainstream. If you will, sustainability is, is now just the way you do business if you're an intelligent business person. And so a number of us are moving on to a more fundamental concept of regenerative capitalism. This is a term coined by the ex-banker John Fullerton, who has a paper out by that title that I would highly recommend. He points out, based on the work of the great green architect Bill Reed, that nature is sustainable not because it's set out to be, but because it's regenerative. And that what we ought to be aiming at is not sustainability, if you will, that's just getting our nose above water, but regenerative systems that then deliver sustainability as an inherent outcome, not because we set out to do it. Right, right, that's interesting. Um, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, you, you mentioned COP21. There's been various different responses. Some people are very optimistic and, and uh, others less so. What's your take? COP21 got us to the starting line. It was a magnificent achievement. And all kudos to the people at the top, Christiana Figueres, Lawrence Tudiana, to the the UNFCCC that finally pulled off a deal. I was also at the COP3 in Kyoto. And COP3 was a bad compromise, reached at 3 in the morning. COP21 is only the beginning. It, we cannot see this as the final achievement. What it did, though, was the nations of the world unanimously agreed. We are in a climate emergency. We we must all work together to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. I believe we can do this profitably. That was the thesis of my 2012 book, The Way Out, Kickstarting Capitalism to Save Our Economic Ass, in which we pointed out that, you know, assume climate change is a hoax. Don't go to Vegas on the odds of that being true. But if all you are is a profit-maximizing capitalist, you'll do exactly what you'd do if you were scared to death of climate change, because we know how to solve this problem at a profit. If it turns out it's a hoax, we'll make a lot of money. If it turns out it's a real problem, we'll make a lot of money. And we're on our way to solving that problem. So either way, stop arguing. In that sense, the science is bar talk. This is a business question. How do we make the most money? And so Carbon Disclosure Project has shown that the companies that are leading in measuring and managing their carbon footprint and baking sustainability into their management have 18% higher return on investment than the companies that are the laggards. 
67% higher return on investment than companies that refuse to measure and manage their carbon footprint. Again, this is just better business. Right. Is that enough? Is, no. Is the, is the profit motive enough? No. And it is coupled with several other things. One, we are, we are facing total system collapse. There was a study funded by NASA a few years back called the Human and Nature Dynamics Study. Inquiring into the causes throughout history of human collapse. And they found that collapse is actually fairly common in human history. When it happens, it tends to last for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They found that two things drive it, one or both, of overrunning your resource base or high levels of inequality. Hello. And the study concluded that given conditions now prevalent in the world, it's very difficult to see how we will avoid collapse. I was part of a team, am part of a team, at the Club of Rome, of which I'm on the executive committee, that was asked by a European foundation to inquire into, can humanity avoid total system collapse? And the club being the club, some of its members said, no. I said, guys, <laughs> bad tactic. You, you don't take a foundation's money, turn around, tell them we're screwed. And second of all, I don't think it's intellectually honest. We have all the technologies we need to make a good start at crafting the solutions to every one of the problems that could drive us towards collapse. So let's go. Let's do it. And they said, good, you get to write the report. So I am now about 90% finished on a book tentatively titled A Finer Future, laying out what are these really gnarly challenges like 62 people, Oxfam tells us, now have as much wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion poorest. The 1% have as much wealth as all the rest of humanity. That, that's staggeringly unfair. and It's just wrong. And, as the Hamdi study shows, it is causative of collapse. We now have 65 million people on the move, refugees, migrants, many of them, most of them headed for Europe. What, are we going to turn Turkey into a refugee camp? We don't know what to do with these people except go back and help them make their home countries re sustainable, regenerative. You know, you can go through and compound the the challenges facing us. How do we feed the people in the world? Uh, Lester Brown says we're one bad harvest away from chaos in the world food market. The, the climate crisis is worsening everything, the violent storms, the flooding, the droughts, the fires, the collapse of the Russian wheat crop in 2010, which led to the spike in food prices, which led to the food riot in Tunisia, which led to the Arab Spring, which now has the Syrian crisis. All of these crises are interconnected, and the solutions are interconnected. I describe it as humanity is in a pool of muck. <laughs> We're not, that's not far wrong. And many of us behave like a bucket of crabs. As soon as anybody starts to gain elevation, the rest of us claw them all down. We need to stop that and start working together, as we did with the Sustainable Development Goals, 
in 2015, as we did with COP21, the nations of the world coming together and saying, all right, let's start focusing on the solutions. Right. And the bottom rungs are things like saving little bits of intact ecosystems. Is that enough? No. Human Rights Watch, trying to keep individuals that are threatened with death alive, or avas, or the efforts to make something a little bit more efficient, a little bit less wasteful, or all of the alphabet soup of the acronyms, SRI, Socially Responsible Investing, GRI, Global Reporting Initiative, uh, IIRC, International Integrated Reporting Committee, SASB, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, all the UM acronyms, all of these are efforts to get to what is called sustainability. But as I said, sustainability is just getting your nose above water. It's the ability to go on. But where are we going? As humanity, what is our goal? Alan Savory talks about team humanity. Where are we headed to? I would argue what we are after is this regenerative future in which integrity of community, integrity of ecosystems is enshrined, is guaranteed, is engendered by following nature's principles. This is the work of Janine Benyus in Biomimicry in showing that nature makes a wide array of products and services very differently than we do. Nature runs on sunlight. There is no waste. Food from any output or the waste from any output is food for another. Nature shops locally. Nature makes no durable toxics. Nature manufactures everything at ambient temperature. And so John Fullerton has put together eight principles of what a regenerative economy would be. Things like what Peter Brown calls right relationship. The economy, this little linear process in which we dig stuff up, put it through various resource crunching activities, use it a little while and then throw it away, is it embedded in the more circular system of society, which is embedded in the truly circular system of the biosphere, and understanding that our economic activities are wholly dependent on social stability, which is wholly dependent on environmental integrity is a core recognition. This is the work of Dr. Robert Costanza and the Ecological Economists. The concept of empowered participation, having a say in the economy that dictates your life, work of people like Francis Moore LePay and Garl Alperowitz with Economic Democracy. The concept of circularity, uh, we exist, you and I are talking to each other because our blood is circulating around. We can grow food because of the circulation of nutrients through the ecosystem. Stop that circularity and we die. The ecosystem dies. The economy will die too unless we create what Alan MacArthur is calling the circular economy. This owes back to Walter Stahel's work in the 70s, Walter in many ways is the father of modern sustainability. The concept of cradle to cradle, of no waste in the industrial process or throughout our economy. The concept of edge effect abundance, this again goes back to Janine who points out that in nature the most abundant ecosystems 
are where two come together, where a river meets the ocean in an estuary, where a meadow meets the forest. Why? Because of diversity. And if you have monocultures in agriculture, in human community, you have less abundance. We need to begin to treasure and celebrate our diversity, quite contrary to what a lot of modern politicians are now calling for. The concept of balance, of harmony between resilience and efficiency. We have an economy that is very efficient at flowing money to the top, and it's very brittle. If you had a completely resilient economy, it would not be terribly efficient. And there is a sweet spot in between those, this, this concept of, of balance. The concept of wealth viewed holistically. What does it mean to be wealthy? I was talking this morning with a friend of mine who's a sustainability head for a large hospitality company. And she was talking about an article she'd read by a guy who had been a senior hedge funder who had quit. He now owns 15 things. He's trying for a minimalist lifestyle. And he defines himself as wealthier now when he has less stuff than how he felt when he had everything. Wealth is not just money. Wealth is belonging. It's well-being. And this balance between money, which is a useful tool, and authentic well-being is, again, one of these core principles of how regenerative systems works. Right. That's very, regenerative that's very systems work. And then the final one, the most important, I think, is honoring place. We can have a global economy so long as all of our places have their own integrity and are themselves regenerative. This flows into whether you're doing manufacturing, whether you're running a service industry, whether you're in agriculture, whether you're doing economic development. And when we do this, we find we generate greater wealth and well-being, greater happiness. So again, we know all of these approaches. We have policy measures that can implement healthier communities, happier people. Wherever people are asked, what is it you want more of? It's happiness. It's health, it's belonging, it's family. It's, money is low down on the list. So in the book, we explore the threats facing us and then all of the solutions. How do we transform finance, corporations, energy, agriculture, the way in which we do work in a time in which automation is putting more and more people out of work? lay out policy prescriptions for how we can achieve these, how this has been done, and then talk a little about what you as an individual can do to begin to make your life happier. Right. Well, that's a, a, a great uh, array of uh, uh, exciting ideas uh, and proposals and ways of thinking uh, about uh, you know, what needs to be done. Um, how do we get there? <laughs> Pick, uh, as my friend, uh, the fo great folks in there, Kate Wolf said, find what you really care about and live a life that shows it. So it can be early childhood education. Enable, 
the work you're doing with young kids to be regenerative of their spirits, of their souls, of their well-being. It can be in agriculture. They, the, uh, both uh, UN UNCTAD and FAO have said the only way we're going to feed the world is with smallholder organic agriculture. It can be in energy, which is where I do a lot of work. We now have, in about 2014, is what I'm attributing it to, and uh, Paul Gilding and Jeremy Leggett also attribute it to about this same time, we hit a turning point. We tipped. Fossil is no longer the competitive energy option. Increasingly, it is the various renewables coupled with much greater efficiency of use. So you now have, um, I forget whether it was Abu Dhabi or Dubai, just commissioned 800 megawatts of solar at 2.9 cents a kilowatt hour. Just the running cost of a natural gas plant is 4 to 6 cents. Building a new coal plant, 10 cents if you put carbon capture on the coal plant, 20 cents. New nukes are 20 to 25 cents. 2.9 cents a kilowatt hour. Tony Saba, Stanford professor, has a brilliant book out and various YouTubes on what he calls clean disruption. He says it's over. By 2030, the entire world will be renewable energy, not just electricity, energy. We are witnessing the death of oil, gas, coal, <laughs> nuclear while we're at it. Now these are very powerful industries and they, all, they attract today enormous flows of subsidies. You're in my tax dollars to the tune of $10 million a minute going into fossil energy. So when people say, how do we pay for this transition? Well, how about we take those subsidies and begin using them to enable everyone on earth to have electricity, but locally. I have a five kilowatt solar system on my ranch and when the power was out and we had <laughs> climate change driven floods a couple of years ago and we were islanded for four days. We were fine, we had power. We can provide ample, affordable food, energy, housing, healthcare, sanitation, transportation, education, entertainment for all of the world's people. Bucky Fuller said, let's create a world that works for 100% of humanity. We know how to do that. We just need to start getting about it. And so in chapter six of the book, A Finer Future, we walk through a whole set of policy prescriptions of how to begin doing that. Things like tax shifting. Right now, we well, go back to the first industrial revolution when we were just introducing the new machines. There were relatively few skilled people to run those machines. There were there was lots of nature all around us. And so as profit-maximizing economists, capitalists, we subsidized the use of raw resources and penalized the use of people. We put on taxes and various disincentives to hire more people and paid to have people go out and dig up virgin tracts of oil, gas, coal, timber, minerals of all sorts. We now live at a time in history where we get 10,000 more people arriving on Earth every hour. We're not short of people, and we're losing every major ecosystem on the planet. 
let's just keep the same economic logic. Economize on your scarce resource, but recognize that what's scarce now has shifted. So let's subsidize the use of people and penalize the use of resources. It's called tax shifting. A number of European countries are starting to do it. Let's tax what we don't want, pollution, depletion. And if we're going to subsidize, let's subsidize what we want more of, which is intact community, ecosystem integrity. Let's do full cost accounting. The people are saying the German energy venda, the transformation in Germany by 2050 to 100% renewable energy, is raising electricity rates by a small amount. But the reason is they are beginning to actually count the real cost of burning coal and oil and internalize those costs. This is just good accounting. It's good economics. What we have been doing, and China is the great example of this, is privatizing profits and subsidizing the cost. So we use our lungs as scrubbers. And in China now, somewhere between three and four million people die every year of acute air pollution. This is now starting to threaten the legitimacy of the party. So China has said, we get it, we get it. They have written into their constitution that they will be the ecological civilization. They reckon to have decarbonized 85% by 2050. And they are putting serious money into building solar, wind, all of the various renewables, and using energy dramatically more efficiently. So in everywhere you look around the world, smart managers are implementing this transition to a regenerative future because it's already better business, because, it, again, it's just honest accounting, honest economics, and because it makes people happier. Right. It's uh a very optimistic vision, and yet in America today, I guess you know there there are political forces that don't recognize uh, global warming. In my country, in the UK, in France, in the Netherlands, in Greece, all around the world, there remain solid populations of people who believe that they can turn the clock back. They can go back to the 1950s where. White men had all the privilege, and people of color, women, disabled people were expendable. In my country, it appears to be about a third of the population is solidly in support of the Neanderthal policies of Donald Trump. You get the same thing in France with Marie Le Pen. You get the same thing with Golden Dawn. Uh, the Austrians are now, I guess, going to re-vote whether they're going to elect basically a fascist or someone who understands that we now live in the 21st century. That we, we live in perilous times, and this is worsened by instant media in which we conduct politics by sound bites, not by reasoned discourse where most people have no understanding of what makes an economy work. Yes. Now, when it, you it's scary. Yes, when you talked at the beginning about the work you do with corporates and sustainability being mainstream, 
what are a few things that make you optimistic there in terms of you know uh, where where big companies are in terms of sustainability and their real sense that this is not something that's you know uh, decades ago CSR or even more of a cost in its side cutting costs and and waste and so forth but actually you know baked into the way they do business into their products and into selling you know uh, products and services that are themselves going to help sustainability two things one sitting in corporate boardrooms with the likes of Paul Pullman or Case Kreethoff both of Unilever but you can pick almost any corporate boardroom of a successful company and these conversations are going on and they're very honest conversations so for example I sat in the Unilever boardroom and they said is it possible to go 100% renewable electricity and Andrew Winston and Mindy Luber and I said yes so they said right let's do it by 2020 we're going to be 100% renewable how do we do it and that kind of honesty of we we're talking to people we trust they say we can do it set a goal set a BHAG big hairy audacious goal right we're gonna do it how do we do it that gives me enormous hope these guys and you know most corporate CEOs are guys are getting off the notion of they think they know everything they recognize that we're facing great challenges and they're turning to sustainability experts for advice now essentially every major company on earth has a sustainability component in many cases it remains in the marketing department which is the wrong place it ought to be in the CFO's office or the CEO's office but fine at least they have it and they're beginning to listen the other thing that gives me hope are the entrepreneurs around the world I advise a group called the unreasonable Institute we bring young entrepreneurs from around the world, put them together with a couple hundred mentors and enable them to accelerate new little businesses solving some of the world's toughest challenges. And you can go on the Unreasonable Institute website and see their metrics. Millions of people benefited. Millions of dollars now being invested into impact we also have individual investors saying I don't want my money doing bad things I want my money in good companies so both in private equity which is where unreasonable plays or in public markets I advise a company called Principium that has built truly fossil fuel free portfolios and trillions of dollars are now being shifted from harm to healing. Millennials want this kind of a future. You, know, you ask a millennial, um, here, you can have one, keys to the car or your mobile phone. They're all going to take the mobile phone because that's their, that's their connection to all their friends and to the information of the world. In many cases, they don't want a big fancy house. They don't want a fancy car. They want to live in a new urbanist neighborhood where they can walk to everything they want, where they can hang out with their friends. They would prefer to take public transit. They love tiny houses. The tiny house movement is 
just taking off. They're building them themselves. I recently spoke at Earth Day, Texas, you know, of all places, Texas. Over 100,000 people came, in many cases, just to see the tiny house village. They just invited anybody who has a tiny house, bring your tiny house, and we'll, we'll create a little village of them. Lines of people waiting to tour tiny houses. This minimalist movement is in search of greater authenticity, greater experience, greater happiness at the expense of stuff. We don't need all the pink fuzzy slippers being shipped halfway around the world from slave labor in Asia to make us happy. So I am extremely optimistic. Yes, we're in a horse race with catastrophe. The good news is we're in the race. And again, we, we know what we need to do to begin putting in place these solutions. And entrepreneurs and scientists are beavering away, coming up with ever new solutions, ever new knowledge of smarter ways to do things. I think we'll make it. It's a very optimistic vision. How, how long have you been involved in sustainability hunting? Long enough that if I were any damn good, we'd have done something about these problems. I started working in, well, when I was five years old, my folks carried me to a demonstration supporting a little boat called the Golden Rule that was being sailed by some Quakers in, well, <laughs> intended to be sailed into the nuclear test site in the South Pacific. They made it as far as Hawaii and all got arrested. But I started working in fair housing in the 50s, civil rights in the 60s, uh, worked against the Vietnam War, planted a tree for the first Earth Day in 1970, took my undergraduate degree in environmental studies, my law degree in environmental law. In the early 70s, helped create a little outfit in Los Angeles called Tree People, doing urban forestry. Tree People is still there, still prospering. Worked with David Brower, at, first at Sierra Club, then Friends of the Earth, then Earth Island Institute. 82 uh, founded and for 20 years ran Rocky Mountain Institute until they fired me, pivoted, and created natural capitalism, and here we are. Along the way, built a couple of MBA programs in sustainability and now teach at the Bard MBA in, in sustainable management. So you you have your uh, hands uh, uh, involved. Your your your. So how, what's a better way of putting that? <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> if I were any damn good, I would have solved these problems. Which yeah. is to say, we're, all of us are smarter than any of us. No one of us is going to do it. the The tendency to make heroes out of people, I think, is stupid. And I say to my students on the first day. For the next two years, you're my students. After that, you're my colleagues. So let's start that relationship now. If I say something and you think it's wrong, please say so. You could well be right. We're going to be learning this stuff together. Sustainability is a discipline we're all making up as we go along. So jump in. Help make it a better discipline. Your opinion matters just as much as mine. Let's go. Right. Right, so when is the book coming out? Well, that's a good question. Um, I will have a 95% mm, finished manuscript in about 10 days. 
Then the question is, are we going to publish it through a big house? And I've just completed the book proposal. We'll send that out to my agent today. If somebody wants to step up and give us a big advance, then I'll probably go with, with a big house. That's a good way to support natural capitalism. All the money that I make goes to keep our team here happy and productive. If uh, nobody wants to step up with a big advance, we may do a crowdfunding campaign for it. The Club of Rome may publish it itself. We may just do an ebook. I mean, why do you need uh, books with pages on them? I don't know. Uh, so that the answer to that will depend will determine when the thing is actually available to people. If we do it as an ebook, pretty soon. If we do it as hard copy, publishers say they like a year from the time they get the manuscript until you get hard copy. I don't know what the hell they do with that year, but they say that's what they want. I'm hoping it will actually hit the streets in one form or another at least by November, if not sooner. Right. So look for it. A tentative title, A Finer Future. If a publisher gets a hold of it, uh, the title is their provenance. They may change the title. But, uh, you know, you can follow my Twitter stream. I'm at H. Lovins or uh, my Facebook, Hunter Lovins on Facebook. And I'll let you know when it's out. Great. Thank you so much, Hunter, for talking to us today. It's been fascinating to get your perspective and uh, your vision and your optimism, which is infectious. And I wish you the very best <laughs> in finishing your book and the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.